Think for a moment about who you might invite to your exclusive and extravagant party if you were the richest and most well-connected person on the planet. Like, who would you invite to that party? You're the richest and most well-connected person on the planet. Well, Michael Rubin, a billionaire and CEO of Fanatics, did not have to imagine what that might be like. He lived out that very dream in his beautiful beachfront property in the Hamptons during the 4th of July week. You see, the food at his party was amazing. He had the best drinks, and he even had this famous Brooklyn pizza chef making his beloved pies. And as the sun started to go down, there was this beautiful fireworks show that kind of splashed across the sky. It was done by the same company that do the Macy's 4th of July fireworks show. And at nighttime, the rooftop turned into this dance floor. It was neon pink. And one famous rapper after another played his own song on stage. Everyone was dressed in white. They were dancing, smiling, and taking pictures at the most exclusive party in the world. Who were the people invited, you might ask? Well, it was the who's who of this passing world. It was people like Jay-Z, Beyonce, Kim Kardashian, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lopez, Ben Affleck, Justin Bieber, Odell Beckham Jr., Kevin Hart, DJ Khaled, Tom Brady, and many, many more. How did I know about the party, you might ask? <laughs> well, I was invited, but I chose not to go. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was simply like the other 100 million people watching videos and seeing pictures from the outside. Only the who's who was on that exclusive guest list. The celebrities were the ones that were invited in, but the unwashed masses, they found themselves on the outside looking in. When well, Mark chapter 2 verses 13 through 17, we see Jesus hosting his own party at Levi's house. Yet this party differed significantly from Michael Rubin's in the Hamptons. Those who were invited in and those who were watching from the outside were the most unexpected people. They were certainly not the people that the religious elite anticipated. Jesus threw a party with no A-listers or celebrities of the day like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. His party at Levi's house was full of tax collectors and sinners. It was full of the worst of the worst people. You see, as we'll see in the text, the tax collectors and sinners are on the inside, but the Pharisees are on the outside looking in. Now, I believe Mark is showing us in this passage that Jesus' guest list at Levi's party is a picture of the guest list that's going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus will throw the most exclusive and lavish party the world has ever known in the new heavens and the new earth. And the people that are on that list will not be the stars of the world. Jesus' guest list will be filled with sinful, lowly, no-name people who found their salvation in the risen Christ. Everyone is invited Yet your invitation comes not with your understanding about what you've done for Jesus, but your understanding about what Jesus has done for you. 
Friends, this is going to be an unexpected guest list filled with unexpected people. And I want to say that is great news for you and me. Well, I have three points coming from the text this morning. We're going to see an unexpected call, a surprising guest list, and a merciful host. An unexpected call, a surprising guest list, and a merciful host. Before we get into the text, I want to give us a quick background. Jesus began his ministry with the words, The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe in the good news. God's redemptive rule and reign arrived as, as King Jesus came on the scene. Although the effects of the curse are being reversed, the kingdom of God is not going to spread without opposition. Opposition from Satan, demons, and his associate. And Mark chapter 2 to Mark chapter 3 verse 6 gives us five different antagonistic accounts from the religious elite of the day. Now we, we witnessed the first hostility in Mark chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. What did Jesus do? Well, he proclaimed his deity before the public by telling this man, your sins are forgiven. And then he proved his deity by what? By telling this man to pick up his mat and go home. So we witness hostility then, and we're going to see, and we're going to see the same hostility in this verse. We will see opposition from the Pharisees, not so much for what Jesus says or does, but simply for the type of people he surrounds himself with. <clears throat> Although there was some surprise from Jesus calling for unlearned fishermen to follow him, Levi, the tax collector, this call was downright shocking on all levels. We are confronted right here with the most unexpected call imaginable. So to our first point, an unexpected call, look with me at verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. See, Jesus, at this point in Mark's account, is still in Capernaum. That's a small town located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you might have noticed, as we've been in the book of Mark, that Jesus has spent a lot of time in Capernaum. You see, the town both saw and heard a lot from Jesus. Jesus expounded the scriptures in the synagogue. He healed many people that were sick with various diseases. He drove out many demons. He proclaimed his deity. He made a lame man walk. And we see here in this text that he continues to teach the people of Capernaum. Capernaum was privileged to enjoy the Lord's presence really more than any other town in Palestine. Yet we read, in Matthew eleven twenty three, Jesus say these words. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So my question is this, how can a people that had so much spiritual privilege as Jesus spent so much time with them be so unresponsive? How can a people with so much spiritual privilege be so unresponsive? 
J.C. Ryle says this, and I think he's right. He says, nothing in fact seems to harden man's heart so much as to hear the gospel regularly and yet deliberately prefer the service of sin and the world. Never was there a people so highly favored as the people of Capernaum, and never was there a people who appear to have become so hard. Now, I want to say, I do not think that this categorizes our congregation. You know what? I'll stop there. I'll say, I know this does not categorize our congregation. However, I do think there could be a few people who walk in here every Sunday hearing the words of Jesus preach from this pulpit. And like the people of Capernaum, your heart is hardened to the things of the Lord. Well, how can you tell, you might ask? Because you have no spiritual life. Your life shows that the gospel has not impacted you whatsoever. You hear Jesus' teaching, but you prefer the taste of the world. You have no spiritual hunger. You do not want to pursue Jesus. You just come to church just because it's something you enjoy to do. Friend, if this is you, please hear me for a moment. Let the warning of Capernaum be a warning for you. If you continue in your ways, it will not go well for you on judgment day. What I would um, plead for you to do, I think that's a good word, plead, is that you would go home right after this and plead, cry out to the Lord that he might soften your heart. Friends, that is your only hope. The same sun which softens the wax will also harden the clay. I pray that is not your reality forever. Well, Jesus was teaching the crowds on the Sea of Galilee when he suddenly did something that was downright shocking. Take a look at verse 14 to see this scandalous call. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. When we read that Jesus saw Levi sitting at the tax office, or more literally, a tax booth, we don't, th we don't need to think about Jesus rolling up to an H&R block, and he looks at a bunch of CPAs who are in their suits, who are crunching a bunch of numbers and laughing at calculator jokes. That's not the image we need to have in our heads. A more appropriate picture would be to picture Jesus walking past a bunch of mafia members who were stealing from legitimate businesses through various threats. Tax collectors, they were thieves backed by Rome to exact payments without people's consents. I'll say that again. They were thieves backed by Rome to exact payments without people's consent. The Roman tax system was fairly complicated. The Romans themselves personally collected taxes like land tax and poll tax, but other taxes like transported goods, they were contracted out to local collectors. And many of these contractors were ethnic Jews. However, these Jewish people, they were certainly not practicing Jews due to the constant interaction with unclean Gentiles. Now, the way this, is wor the way this would, would work, would, you would have Rome, and Rome would kind of make these bids. And so they'd make these bids saying, 
all right, we're going to let somebody be over this region. And so these people would go and say, I'll collect X amount for you. And they would accept those bids. And so they would have authority over that region. But the person actually collecting the taxes on things like transported goods, which I think we see in this passage, they would collect that X amount plus 20%, keeping the rest for themselves. Jewish tax collectors had the backing from Rome to pillage their own people. One commentary said, tax collectors were tangible reminders of Roman domination, detested alike for their injustice and Gentile uncleanliness. Now, if you look at the text, you see that Jesus saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. That is Matthew sitting at his tax booth. You have a better understanding of this scene. It would be like if the Taliban took over America and right outside your front door, you saw an American with an AK-47 guarding a Taliban base. What would you look at that person like? You would look at them in absolute disgust that that person isn't worthy of the air that they breathe. Likewise, this was the Jewish reaction to the tax collectors. And if the Jewish people hated them that much, don't you think that Jesus might do something similar? Or maybe he doesn't hate them, but he just wouldn't interact with them. He would just kind of turn the other way and go somewhere else. Well, that's my, that might be what we do, but not the Son of God. Jesus' eyesight was filled with grace and mercy as he summoned this tax collector to come to him. And Jesus calling Levi to follow him, Jesus was focusing not on what this man had done, but on what Jesus would do to him. Jesus saw through Levi's present, and he focused on the future. From a publican to a preacher of righteousness, a crook, to a Christ follower, from a double crosser to a disciple. Jesus had eyes of grace focusing on not what Levi did, but on what Levi would be as he followed his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why John MacArthur calls this scene a scandal of grace. Well, I want to make two observations and one application from this inconceivable call. When we get to heaven, I think we're going to be pretty surprised whom we find there. When we begin to understand Levi's background, we start to come to grips with the fact that we're going to share heaven with some unexpected people. Take Jeffrey Dahmer, for example. The Gospel Coalition wrote an article about him titled, Sharing Heaven with Serial Killers. Dahmer was one of the most twisted serial killers of our lifetime. He killed and committed atrocious acts to 17 people in a span of 13 years. Nevertheless, when he was in prison, a pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe started to share the gospel with Jeffrey Dahmer. According to Roy, Dahmer struggled to grasp the depths of God's grace. But in an interview in 1994, this is what he said, and I quote, I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
and he was baptized shortly after that confession. In the TGC article, the writer followed Dahmer's profession saying, though we won't know the sincerity of his profession until heaven, it's possible that one of the most twisted serial killers of our lifetime said yes to grace. Now what that means is, just think about this with me. You might be in heaven standing next to Jeffrey Dahmer singing the doxology. Now I want to pause for a moment. Does the thought of serial killers or child sex offenders entering the kingdom of God cause you to recoil or get uncomfortable? I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us just answered yes. That uncomfortableness we feel might demonstrate that we need to be reminded afresh of God's gracious call in our own lives. If you look at Levi's call, Jesus does not make the tax collector do anything before he extends his love and mercy upon this poor sinner. No, Jesus extended Levi grace as he was literally in the act of stealing from others. Friend, do you know? Do you know that God did this very same thing for you too? He extended his grace and mercy in a moment in your life where you did not deserve an ounce of it. Everything about your life showed that you were undeserving of his love and mercy. But brothers and sisters, God gave you mercy. He gave you salvation without any cost to yourself. He did not put limits on any of the grace that he gave you. So let's not attempt to limit the grace of God that he can show to others. Even the worst of the worst people. It's those people like Levi and Jeffrey Dahmer that God's grace is magnified the most. Friends, heaven will be filled with some formerly messed up people. But remember, that includes you too. Well, second observation, Levi in the eyes of the Jewish people had no hope. Levi in the eyes of the Jewish people had no hope. I've told this story before, um, but... After Christ saved me, and this, is, this was like six to nine months after Christ saved me, I was sitting at a coffee shop, and at the coffee shop, a brother in my fraternity that was two years older came up to me, and we didn't interact very much. I really didn't know him, but as he came up to me, he said, Bryce, he said, I want to apologize to you. And I sat there thinking, man, I don't even know if I've ever really had a conversation with him. Why is he going to apologize? And he looked at me and he said, I want to apologize because I never shared the gospel with you. And he looked at me and I'll never forget this for the rest of my life. And he said these words. He says, because I counted you as someone with no hope. He says, because I counted you as someone with no hope. Christ fellowship, as we've seen, God is in the business of saving people that the world counts as no hope. You might be looking right now at your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your coworker, or your neighbor thinking, how in the world will God save them? You're looking at them like my fraternity brother looked at me, like the Jewish people looked at Levi, like the world in 1994 looked at Jeffrey Dahmer. 
Now, you're not, you might not verbalize it like that, but everything in your heart says, I just don't think that the Lord will save them. They are too far off. Now, I want to say it makes sense that the world would look at people like this, but for the Christian, that's nonsensical. Evidence abounds to the fact that God saves the worst of the worst. Look at Levi's story. Look at Dahmer's profession. Look at my story. Look at Paul's conversion and know that God saves those that are far off. I'm reminded of Hebrews 7.25 when the writer says, Therefore, God is able to save completely. Who's he talking about? Who is God able to save completely? Those who come to him, to God, through Jesus Christ. That's who God saves. Anyone who comes to him through Jesus Christ. I just want to say God can, in fact, save your wayward child. God can, in fact, save your mother or father, your sister or brother. I pray that that brings much comfort to you. Well, one application. Remember that God's grace is not bound. Remember that God's grace is not bound. Since God can save completely anyone who comes to him, even those who the world says has no hope, that necessarily means everyone is a candidate for God's mercy. Keep praying and keep sharing the gospel with them. I'm reminded of the old hymn that we sing regularly. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save them, full of pity, love, and power. Do you truly believe those lyrics that you sing? Jesus is ready, he stands to save them. Friend, if you do, and I pray that you do, keep bringing them to Jesus. Keep bringing them to Jesus in your prayers and keep bringing them to Jesus through the gospel. I'm praying for your lost friends and family. Well, now Jesus not only calls one mobster to himself, but he invites the entire mafia to have dinner with him. You might call this scene the delinquent dinner or the failure feast. It was a party with the worst of the worst and the Pharisees. They truly could not believe what they were laying their eyes on. To our second point, a surprising guest list. Look with me at verse 15. While he was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. I keep saying that Jesus hosts a party. I know it's speculation, but I think Jesus throws a party at Levi's house and invites a plethora of people to celebrate. It seems like the text gives evidence to the fact that everyone is there to be around Jesus. Now, I want us to look at verse 15 because Mark uses the word many twice. He's emphasizing a couple things right here. First, many people, it says, were hanging out at Levi's house, which means Levi could hold many people in his house. I think this text gives evidence to the fact that Levi had a pretty big home, right? That he was a wealthy man. Secondly, we see that there were many people following Jesus. So Jesus is really at the very beginning of his ministry, but his fame has spread. There were many people that were flocking to him. 
And finally, Mark emphasizes not only the number of people, but also the type of people Jesus surrounded himself with at the party. The text says that Jesus reclined with many what? Tax collectors and sinners. Picture the people you might see if you walked into the dirtiest, nastiest bar on Bourbon Street in New Orleans. I think this is the picture that Mark is painting here when he writes that tax collectors and sinners were reclining with him. One commentary helpfully um, said, the sinner or the wicked that we see in this text are not occasional transgressors of the Torah, but they fundamentally stand outside of it. So they're not occasional transgressors, but they fundamentally stand outside of the Torah. And the text says that Jesus not only hung out with them, but he was what? What does the text say? He was reclining with them. This posture was normally reserved for feasts and festivals as Jesus' head was facing the table, but his feet were outward from it. I do not want us to picture Jesus standing behind a table at a homeless shelter, giving scoops of refried beans to each person who walks down the food line. No, picture Jesus after he walks into that Bourbon Street bar and he says, I want every single person here to come to my home and have a dinner with me. It was a surprising group of people in a very intimate setting. Now, I think we have to ask this question. Why in the world, why in the world were these people, these tax collectors and sinners, even willing to hang out with Jesus in the first place? You see, we don't have any indication that Jesus called these other guys like Levi. It appears to be that they genuinely desired to be around someone who was so diametrically different from them. I talk about this guy often, but one guy in my fraternity, he did such a great job of bridging the gap between Christians and the worst of the worst people in my fraternity. It was quite unheard of of somebody like him to be hanging out with somebody like me. We were very different people. I was drinking, partying, doing drugs, and I honestly don't think this guy had ever even seen a PG-13 movie. We could not have been more different. But surprisingly, I wanted to be around him. As a freshman, I remember he invited me over to a party at his house. Now, people were drinking. They were drinking Coca-Cola, and I think some people even ventured out to have a ginger ale. But when I got there, I felt super out of place. But it wasn't because of him. He didn't make fun of me around his Christian friends. He didn't belittle me, condemn me. No, he included me. He pursued me. He cared well for me. We were so different, but he loved me so much. And I believe in a similar way, this is exactly why the tax collectors and sinners found themselves wanting to be around Jesus, who was so very different than him. Jesus did not belittle, condemn, or exclude these people. He pursued them. He wanted to be around them. Jesus' acceptance of Levi, it signaled to the others that they could come be with him as well. It signaled to Capernaum that Jesus was in fact a friend of sinners. But most of all, it signaled that fellowship with Jesus was based on something different than legalistic obedience to the Torah. 
You see these people right here? They would have never, ever, ever been allowed to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Yet they found themselves reclining with the Son of God. Well, I want to make one observation and one quick application before we move on. This observation. Jesus did not expect unbelievers to act like believers. Jesus did not expect unbelievers to act like believers. Do you ever find yourself avoiding interactions with lost people because they do not meet your moral expectations? Jesus did not make entrance into this dinner contingent upon these sinners cleaning themselves up. It was a come-as-you-are party. Now, as we think about this dinner, I know this is speculation, but I wonder if there were some choice words that were thrown around at this party. I wonder if there was inappropriate stories that were told, or maybe even some heretical statements. There's probably a good chance of it because I feel safe to assume that many, if not most of these people were unconverted. However, Jesus is happy to be around them. Why? Because morality is not his goal. Repentance and faith is his goal that they might be saved. But I want you to ask yourself this. Do you think you would have accepted an invitation to that party? Or do you think you would have said, you know, I just don't want to be around those people. You know, I just don't want to associate myself with those type of people. But my question is, if this is you, what moral criteria do unbelievers have to make to, meet, to make them fit for gospel proclamation? Do they have to agree about pro-life? Do they have to agree about gun laws that you hold? Do they have to agree about your favorite presidential candidate? Do they have to have a clean mouth, a clean background check, or a clean dating history? Friends, if Jesus placed these moral expectations on people to either hear or not hear the gospel, many people, if not most in this room, would not be saved. But he didn't, and we shouldn't either. We must not share the gospel with people who only look, vote, and act like us. You see, these people at Jesus' table, they didn't look vote and act like him. No, they were diametrically different than Jesus. But Jesus found himself around these people. He didn't expect unbelievers to act like believers. And neither should we. On the other side, one application. I want to give an application to college students and young adults. Do not use this text, and I repeat, do not use this text to justify moving closer and closer to sin. I've heard several people point to this text to justify why they go to immoral parties, watch immoral movies with friends, or find themselves in immoral places. They might say something like, you know, I'm trying to be like Jesus. I'm trying to befriend sinners. But my question is, every time I ask well, what, ki- what type of gospel were you reflecting when you went to these places? And I think nine out of ten times when I have this conversation, the person comes back and says, you know, I was not reflecting Jesus very well at all. 
Well, friends, I want to say that Jesus hung out with sinners, but Jesus did not hang out in a brothel. Jesus also hung out with sinners, but he never sinned when he was with them. So since you are not sinless like Jesus, you need to prioritize your own soul above everything, even befriending unbelievers. And what, what does that look like? How can we bring this to the ground level? Well, that might not look like going to these fraternity parties and having these friends over on Sunday for a meal. That might look like not going to these weekend getaways, but trying to work out with them, study with them, or just spend time around campus with these people. The application for you is simply this, to be prudent while you pursue these non-Christian relationships. If any of these relationships lead you into sin, prioritize your own soul. What does it profit a man to have all the friends in the world but lose his soul? Your relationship with Jesus matters more than anything. Well, the scribes who were Pharisees, they found themselves angry and bewildered as they looked on from the outside, wondering why in the world would Jesus fellowship with people so disconnected from the Torah. And we see this in verse 16. Look with me there. Mark writes this. When the scribes who were Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? For the first time, we're introduced to a people called the Pharisees. They were people who ardently followed the Torah. They considered themselves righteous as they prioritized outward performance of the law. It was a heartless formal religion that sought to exalt themselves above everyone else. And Jesus called these people continually what? He called them whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but what were they on the inside? They were dead. Philip Grand Ryken describes the Pharisees like this. He said, the Pharisees who lived during and after the time of Christ were very religious. They were regular in their worship, orthodox in their theology, and moral in their conduct. Yet something was missing. Although God was in their minds and in their actions, he was not in their hearts. Therefore, their religion was little more than hypocrisy. And we see this hypocrisy on center stage in verse 16. Again, what question did they ask Jesus? They said, well, they asked the disciples. They said, why does Jesus hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Again, the Pharisees, they knew the law, especially the greatest command. In Mark 12, one of the scribes asked Jesus, what is the greatest command? And Jesus answered what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, and the second greatest command is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And what did the scribe say? He said, you answered correctly. There's no other commandment greater than these. Now the scribes proved, the Pharisees proved that they knew these commands because they knew the Torah by heart. But this text demonstrates that their actions were not consistent with their theology. They would not even go inside the house because they considered the house unclean because of these tax collectors and sinners. So they found themselves on the outside asking the disciples, 
Why does Jesus associate himself with these unclean people? The Pharisees didn't see themselves as unclean, so there was no way that they would interact with unclean people. Sharing a meal was a big deal in the first century. This was a sacred time before God that brought about blessings from God. That's precisely why these Pharisees reacted with confusion and disdain. They couldn't fathom why Jesus was sharing table fellowship with a group of people who did not deserve fellowship with God. The Pharisees, in their own eyes, they deserved that fellowship. They should have been at that table with Jesus, not these tax collectors and sinners. You see, this self-righteousness had blinded their eyes about their sin, and so they were blinded to their need for a Savior. Friends, self-righteousness is a cancer. It's a sin that blinds and deceives people to the greatest degree. It's like someone with leprosy condemning someone else for spending time with lepers. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Unless that person condemning does not understand their own sickness. The Pharisees did not understand their sickness of sin. Thus, we see in this very passage, they looked on from the outside upon these sinners with great contempt. This cancer ultimately kept them from coming to Christ for salvation. And it actually calls them to send Jesus to the cross. This cancer is deadly. It rots us from the inside out. Well, Christ Fellowship, one quick application for us is to keep confessing our sins to one another so we might avoid the cancer of self-righteousness. I think there's a subtle difference between sitting before a community group saying, I'm the chief of sinners like Paul, and actually being vulnerable to confess specific sins to them. The former has a veneer of holiness without true repentance. As a result, if you keep doing this, it will create vain people, externally moral but loveless, theological but proud, emotional but unaffected. Friend, one way to kill that pharisaical soil is just to have people in your life that you can confess your sin to. Have accountability partners that when you sin, you call them and say, this is what I did. I want to tell you about how I failed. And they will love you through that and help you. But if you keep that in, it's only going to create self-righteousness. Well, to land the plane, we see Jesus' merciful reply to the Pharisees' question. The answer illuminates the massive difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees came to enslave, but Jesus came to save. He came to redeem. The last point, a merciful host. Now, I want to say this whole scene finishes with one of the most memorable sayings in the Gospels. The text says, when Jesus heard them, he told them, and we can look at this in verse 17. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. In this unforgettable quote, Jesus defends his outreach to sinners. He's saying that his mission are for the very people that's surrounding this table. It's popular for companies and even churches today to have a mission statement. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Mission statements are just, you know, they're, they're concise and simple ways to express the purpose of your company or your church. Our church has a mission statement. It just says Christ Fellowship's mission is to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God. Very simple and concise. It explains why we are here. And Jesus in Mark chapter 2 verse 17, he gives us his very mission statement. He tells us exactly why he has come to earth, why he has taken on humanity, why he is headed to the cross. Verse 17 explains it. He has come to do what? He's come to call sinners to himself. He's come to save the worst of the worst. Friends, please hear me. Jesus, in giving us his mission statement, unveils the fact that God's grace can overcome the most depraved and helpless sinner. It doesn't say those that are semi-sick. It doesn't say those that are partially sick. It doesn't say those that are barely sick. It simply says those who are sick. Those who understand themselves to be great sinners will be met by a great Savior. Jesus did not have much to say, as we can see in this passage, for those who think themselves to be healthy. But to those who are sick, Jesus has the very remedy that they long for. I want to speak to anybody in the room who is not trusted in Jesus for salvation. Do you understand yourself to be too sinful to come to Jesus? Have you ever thought though that, that you're just too sinful, that you've blown it so many times, God has given you this chance and this chance and this chance, and you've blown every chance? Well, I want to say that you might feel like that, but what does this text actually say to your situation? How does this passage speak to that very thought? Well, friend, this passage affirms that you are never, ever, ever too sick to come to Jesus. But why is that? Is it because you're a hypochondriac? You might think you're sick when in reality you actually are not? Well, no, you're spot on about your diagnosis. You are sinful and you have blown it. But God has not given up on you. And I think you being in this room right now, listening to this very sermon, shows that God has not given up on you. He's calling you to come to himself through repentance and faith. He's reminding you that he saves the worst of the worst, that he was around the tax collectors and sinners because he came not to call the righteous, but you, you to repentance. And so what do you do? Well, friends, you're halfway there. You understand yourself to be sinful. Now just cling to the mercies of Christ. Now just find yourself coming to him and not leaning on your own understanding, but casting yourself on Jesus who died for you and who rose again and promised that all who are weary, he will save you. Friend, I would encourage you not to sit in your sin, but come to Jesus who has died to take your sins away. Well, Christian, I want us to finish our time meditating on what Jesus is saying in verse 17. Members of Christ Fellowship, this is my desire. This is what I've been praying for this whole week. That we would walk out of this church praising our great physician. 
We all had one thing in common before Christ called us. We were terminally ill, headed to eternal destruction. But that's what we deserve. Our sickness warrants separation. Our illness isolates us from God. Our disease deserves death. Our sin earns suffering. Our transgressions merit terror. But this passage tells us that God's grace is greater than our sin. One Puritan so beautifully wrote, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. I love that. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Although we deserve death, the great physician stands to save us, full of pity, love, and power. Be encouraged this morning. The mercy of Christ has swallowed up your sickness. Our great Savior has taken away your transgressions. Our sickness has been treated by the only successful remedy provided for humanity. Our diagnosis that once read eternal death now reads eternal life. An eternal life of no sickness, no sorrow, and no separation. We can rejoice and say with Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for a Savior, and I have a great Savior for my need. Amen. Christ Fellowship, as I said in my introduction, Mark is showing us a picture of the kingdom of God. And this kingdom is going to be filled with the most unexpected people. The picture you see at Levi's house right here is a foretaste of the messianic banquet. The ones who have been invited to recline with Jesus for all eternity will not be the time's 100 most influential people. The who's who of this world will be like the Pharisees looking on from the outside. But to those on the inside, to those names that are on that guest list, it will read names like Donberg, Elaine Brooks, Neil Conway, Bill Owen, Kevin Dry, Yuda Hansen, Will Hester, Chris Malinow, and Wes Workala. Certainly not the who's who in the eyes of the world, but in the eyes of Christ, those people that I just named are everything because Christ went to the cross to die for those very people. Jesus' guest list will be filled with sinful, lowly, no-name people who found salvation in the risen Christ. An unexpected guest list filled with unexpected people. Christ Fellowship, what do you do as you walk out of this building? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You're on that list. Let me pray.